Did you get it figured out? I think so. I think it was the uh, the cord pulling on the. Oh, I see. Yeah. See what's going on here. Yeah. What do you think that is? Um, Maybe it's. Yeah, you got to get it. You got to set the. You think I set it like that? Uh, I think you got to push the mic further into the holder. Okay. Yep. I was doing that earlier. Yep. There you go. But see how it's still flopping like that. Yeah, yeah. Is it? Is it the screw? It could be the screw. Should I get a? Do you have a screwdriver? I do. It sounds good. All right. I'm je- I'm jealous. <laughs> that thing that that boom mic is nice. It's pretty slick. You know, it's it's um it's nice and small. Sits on the floor. Should keep us from hearing if if we both go this way from yeah. hearing any movement on the table, which could be, liberate us <laughs> <laughs> to to be able to look up uh, content. Right. Right. Or explain with our hands as necessary. Right. That might still be a problem. The studio is getting built out though. Yes. It is. We need a bigger table. I'll work on that. <laughs> yeah, this is. It's okay though. <clears throat> Got to start somewhere, right? Let's let's just jump into it if you're ready. All right, let's go. Yeah. So this week we wanted to talk about GlaxoSmithKline and their CEO, Sir Andrew Witte. I think that I would love to be a sir someday. That's life goals, as they're referred to. You might be. <laughs> I can only hope. Maybe if this podcast takes us there. Yeah. So we listened to a podcast from Corner Office, the NPR marketplace podcasting show that has interviews with CEOs and that Host, was, hosted by Kai Rizdal. Yeah, hosted by Kai Rizdal. He, he's awesome. You, oh, you think I, I, I listen to Kai Rizdal almost every day. He's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, he's terrific. Funny side note: my roommate. Absolutely, just something rubs him the wrong way about Kyra's doll. Really? <laughs> yeah, I like Kyra's doll. So do I. So is it the smugness or the yeah, yeah the smugness? Oh, I'm gonna take that back to him. He's gonna he's. I know what his exact reaction will be because you just nailed it. It's sort of a you know I could see the smugness, but it also <clears throat> seems he seems humble. Yeah. But smug, which is an odd combination. But I, I I could see how someone could just zero in on the yeah on the smug, but. I think the smugness is almost needed for his position. I mean, he's intelligent. He's, yeah, yeah, and, and he's he's talking to some pretty heady people and trying to simplify for everyday listeners like you and I. Exactly, and I think his interviews with the C, with CEOs are fantastic. And the Glaxo Smith Klein interview with Sir Andrew Witte really stuck out to me because of the inherent questions that it asks about the role that big pharma can play in the world. And I really warmed up to the conversation for a couple reasons. The first was just how unbelievably articulate Sir Andrew Witte was. He is the current CEO of GlaxoSmithKline, who I'm going to call GSK for now on because I have a terrible time pronouncing their name. GSK. Yeah, he's he's got a great voice, but that's not what got your your attention. It's it's no. how he talks about his business and the role they play in society. Right, right, it is, and he seems to be one of those bold leaders who has clearly prioritized or has a very clear understanding of their whole stakeholder group and what it is that they bring to the world as an organization, what their real purpose is, and the real point that. I find interesting is that this CEO, Andrew Witte, has made a few decisions over the course of his tenure that have provided an enormous benefit to 
humanity as a whole that I didn't know GlaxoSmithKline or GSK was behind. For example, when Ebola became uh, epidemic or uh, risked a major outbreak of becoming a global epidemic, but was in within a few countries in Africa, a really big deal. Exactly, they made a five hundred million dollar investment at no profit to get the Ebola vaccine to Africa, and they were the first company to to do that. So this is uh, this is big pharma, so called big pharma, which carries with it, I think, for most people, uh, it's a pejorative. Um, you know, pejorative tone. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And they're investing a huge amount of money in, in addressing a global, uh, potential global pandemic. Oh, completely. I mean, you think about the $500 million investment and a CEO of a major company has a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders to make a return on every dollar. And the returns that pharmaceutical companies have are just absolutely insane. Yeah, it's a what is it a one point three trillion dollar industry? Yeah, and uh, and GSK is a, roughly a what a thirty five billion dollar company, right? Massive, massive. So these guys are investing a lot of money. So to tell you know one of the things that I've always uh, wondered about you know as as people like to take it on to big pharma and the cost of pharmaceuticals and medicine. Um, you know, who whose job is it to invest in research and development? Is it should it be the government doing that? You know, th- this is an interesting industry yeah. where where there's a public benefit, right? And yeah. so someone has to invest in this in this development, and there's huge regulations to make sure these guys aren't you know unexpectedly killing people. Um, who should be who should be footing the bill for that? It's interesting that you bring that up. So Witty talked about how the common perception is that. Most of the time, it's universities and big pharma that come out with new vaccines or new medicines or new things. What's actually happened is almost never is it universities that are coming out or releasing these major drugs. It's the big pharma companies that are building them and releasing them. And these big pharma companies, yeah, they might benefit from government um, like tax cuts or they might benefit from universities, which might be governmentally funded, identifying a specific formula. But if you look at what's behind the funding for all of this drug and vaccine creation, it's investors. The question of who should who should fund that, I think is is tough. I mean, you look at the role that government should play in society and you look at them being in the position to provide for society what they cannot individually provide for themselves or that companies cannot provide for them. And this is certainly that very gray area. I think for me, um, my interpretation is that um, there's got to be a fine line to where when there is deemed a major vaccine or a major drug that needs to be created that there are not the return doesn't look like it's going to happen so companies won't do it then government should be stimulating that or be or be opening the door to that but mm-hmm. i mean it's tough right now because how can you know a ceo of a big pharma company how can they justify to their shareholders a $500 million investment that might not have any return at all. So let's talk about that. How do you think, uh, how do you think he did that? You know, he's, he's got a boardroom They're, they're uh, yeah. They certainly understand. It, it, this wasn't just uh, investing in an epidemic that was in the United States, which might be one of their larger markets. Right. Um, but he's investing in an epidemic that's hitting a, um, a large, um, a highly populated country in Africa. Right. And how do you think that conversation went? And, and listening to him and Kai's 
pod, podcast. How do you how do you think he he handled that? Well, I think first and foremost, being a, a, an incredibly articulate person certainly helps. I mean, his leadership style certainly seems to be one where the way that he, to me, the way that he articulates things is to distill it down to a simple issue, provide multiple examples that aid the point that he's making about the issue, and then follow that up with the broader impact to society in general. Um, so I think for, for him to talk through with his board around the opportunity that GlaxoSmithKline had in the face of Big Pharma, given everything that's going on in the industry with so many people having such a, uh, a tainted reput- reputation of Big Pharma, I think he had to have positioned it as an opportunity to do something really meaningful. Yeah. Well, let's personalize this for a second. I, yeah. I assume you've never come down with Ebola. No. Um, Luckily. Uh, have you been on pharmaceuticals? Um, you know, you can take that in a lot of directions. Yeah. Uh, I know you were out in Colorado recently. Have you? Right. Ha- have you? Um, you know, have you? Do you take? Uh, do you take prescription meds? And 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 uh, do you have experience with the cost of these? And who pays for them? Right. Right. Um, you know, I've been I've been lucky enough to be relatively healthy. I have had a couple infections over the course of my life, but the first real experience that I've had with a major cost due to pharmaceuticals was actually um, my brother when I was in high school. He got very sick with a, a blood infection, and mm-hmm. he was in the hospital for uh, I think a month on Dilaudid, which is the medical equivalent of heroin, basically. And I remember my parents explaining to me at a very young age that obviously we were lucky enough to have insurance and the value that insurance provided to us because what it ended up costing, I think, the was over $100,000 for my brother to be in the hospital for over a month and then bed rest with an IV into his heart for another month after that. So... If we didn't have insurance, my family would have been. I don't. I don't know what we would have done. I, I really don't. Yeah, because, you've been devastated. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There's no way I would have gone to college. I mean, right. do you so, know? Who, do you know who makes that drug? Uh, I don't. We should look that up. We should. We should. But we'll put I mean, that in the notes. yeah, yeah. We should. We'll look that up and we'll put that in the notes. But well, I have some some experience. Yeah. Uh, you know, not directly. I, I've had the you know infections and had the Z packs that sort of you know knock it out. And I I really try not to uh, take antibiotics as, as much as possible for the reasons that uh, we all understand. That as you get older, you want to know that when you really need them, that they're going to be there for you. Um, but as my mother was uh, uh, moving into advanced stages of Alzheimer's, I was you know she was in a, at a place where within about um, I want to say two and a half years she had consumed about $120,000 in savings just to provide her basic care Wow and she proceeded to live about another eight years and uh, you know in the early days there there was dementia medication and as time went on um, uh, there were other medicines that anti-seizure medication other medicines that helped uh, ensure a higher standard living and she did not have you know she was on Medicare uh, at this time and so that's us you and I as tax payers that are reimbursing for that um, but there was you know this this uh, phase where we were getting um, 
uh, discounted medicine from before her assets were gone, and she was uh, you know, had virtually no income, was living off Social Security, uh, and she did get uh, drugs provided at discount from the pharma industry at a, in a special program for low-income people, and so directly saw benefits in my own family for the way in which the industry subsidizes uh, use. But but it leads to a bigger question about who is paying, you know, who's ultimately paying for medicine and who's ultimately paying for the research and development going on here. Cause that's, that's one of the reasons prices for some of these meds are so high. Exactly. And I think the, the tough thing that is starting to percolate, if I, um, I can use that word, is that as more, as technology continues to create transparency within every industry and every area, <clears throat> I think it's it's much easier for consumers to understand price changes in certain products or certain drugs or certain vaccines. And it's interesting to see as technology increases transparency in the pharmaceutical space, a lot of the r- bad reputation that you see for these big pharma companies comes from these crazy pricing swings. EpiPen is one of them recently with the price changing 500%. In, in what, seven years or something like that, it's it's gone up 500%. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, the, the argument about whether or not that's uh, that should happen, or uh, which I personally don't think that that should happen at all. I think that that's something that people re- rely on being a disposable life-saving mechanism. But, um, you know, for consumers to finally have transparency into a very complicated pricing system, I think is playing at a great, essentially cost or at a very hurtful uh, uh, reputational standpoint to these big pharmaceutical companies who are trying to understand how to price a drug that there's so many intermediaries involved in the value chain that have a that have their hand in the in the whole pricing system of it. That's right. I, yeah, I know he's making the, the case in his podcast that ultimately transparency is going to help, but I think consumer education is a big question in something as complicated as healthcare. Right. And um, you know, if a doctor offers you um, a test or a, a medication, and that uh, that is. Uh, free, uh, of course, we're all gonna we're gonna want to take the test if it's not uh, uh, too costly to us in our personal comfort. Um, but if um, if we have to pay, it's a little harder for an everyday consumer to make that trade off and that calculation. That's what we've historically re- relied on doctors to do, right? So uh, I it's, I think the transparency is good. I think as we're moving to affordable health care, it's moving people to a market. It's created a market. But what's not fully happened here that I think he's referring to is creating the broad transparency for consumers about um, what does everything cost and what are the um, uh, what are the benefits? Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think about my first time uh, having to go through understanding my health care and going to the doctor when I didn't have my parents' support. So... <laughs> You know, I think it was about a year into my job here in Minneapolis. I, what did I do? Oh, I got a uh, my my eardrum ruptured from wrestling with some friends, and I had to go to the doctor, get it all figured out, and then I get the bill, and I'm confused because I have there's the cost of the surgery, then there's the discount applied on top of that that I'm assuming that my insurance negotiated, and then there's the um, there's the antibiotics that I have to take on top of that, and then I'm not sure do I pay with my HMO, my FMO, my whatever other fund I have. And then on top of that, there's 
still a price tag after that because I didn't hit my deductible. Right. right. So, <laughs> so I, I had exactly this kind of experience recently where I, I was uh, in between uh, trips. Um, I had literally, I think, six hours between two trips, uh, six hours of time that I could get into a um, uh, to a facility, and I chose to go just directly to a uh, Tria Healthcare yeah. uh, to get my back checked out, so they could put me back uh, and, um, and put me on a steroid that that ultimately got me better. Um, I had no idea that I was going to get directly hit with that bill, which uh, an hour was seven hundred dollars. Oh, so <laughs> so fortunately, I had. Put yeah. money in the bank and and right. uh, and in my uh, health savings account or one of those accounts you just mentioned, um, and and that was used for that. But it's um, uh, I didn't sign up for that before I asked them to you know to do the specific treatment that they did and the the specific therapy that they put me on. Um, I wish I had known that. I wish I had known that I'd be putting the bill for that. It's, we there's there's got to be a way to make it better. Would you have still gone? You know, I think. Um, I think for me, I was in such pain at the time, and I, I was actually impairing my ability to actually do my job and do my work. So I think I would have, uh, I still would have gone, but I would have felt better knowing what I was getting into. I think that it's an interesting point because here in the medical space, I mean, you've got doctors that are providing you with that knowledge that they have, that they are diagnosing your, your problems, they're diagnosing everything that's, that's happening with you. You've got pharmaceutical companies that are, are, are making the drugs and providing you with the product that's going to help you get better and heal you long term. And between both of there, it's, it's so confusing about how everything is, 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 is being priced and whether or not it's good for you and whether or not the, the pricing and everything else that is, is being provided to you is being provided to you because it's making you better or it's being provided to you because they just want to make money. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the interesting place that GlaxoSmithKline is currently in right now is they as an organization or as an institution are currently sitting in a place where they have been trying to provide something to people where they are providing it because it is a benefit to that person. You know, they as an institution founded the first malaria vaccine and they are only going to sell it at a 5% profit margin. Right. And they've, they've openly said that. And so I, I find it, um, I find it fascinating that as Sir Andrew Whitty is going to be pulled out, you know, how can this institution, which might be more on the progressive side of big pharma, will that institution continue to move in that direction? Yeah, yeah. We, we um, in this podcast, talk a lot about our movements and, and changes that are happening in business. And um, one of the themes that we hit uh, on occasionally is this sort of blurring of missions, um, a, a social mission, a business mission, uh, that it's, it's rarely just a, um, a profit mission that any company has today. So in the case of Big Pharma, how do you, how do you see the mission? What are the major stakeholders that are at play here and, and how, how is that affecting the choices that, that leadership at GSK are, uh, are uh, adhering to? Yeah, certainly the, so the, the major stakeholders that I see from a, from a high level are obviously their shareholders. So they're key investors who are looking for the return in big pharma. So they're typically looking for that big home run hit out of that new pharmaceutical that they release or that new profitability area that, or that new drug that has large margins because they've 
invested so much in understanding how it can heal people. There's also this the stakeholders of society it, it, as a whole. So they're what I would refer to as their ultimate consumer customer base. How are they serving the world by really giving people drugs and vaccines that are making them not only prolonging the effects of what they have going on, but actually making them better? And then lastly, I think there's an interplay that they have with government going on as well. I mean, big pharma companies in an instance where they are profitable and can provide these drugs and vaccines to people in a way that is healing them are essentially saving us as taxpayers dollars that the government might have to provide for us anyways through, you know, continued nationalized healthcare or ultimately, you know, drug research spending that they don't have to pay for right now. Absolutely. So they um they also employ a hundred thousand people. So that's I a, didn't know that. Yeah, it's it's a it's a really big company, and they're just uh, I forget what share uh, GSK is, but let's just say it's ten percent of the sure. farm, farm industry. It's a lot of people in, in uh, that are are employed uh, to try to advance this. So I think they're having a, a big economic impact through those wages as well. Yeah, I certainly miss their employee base. You know, um, I think they're the effect that they can have. I think is, is massive when you think about producing pharmaceuticals that meet the demands of 7.1 billion people. Mm-hmm. You need a lot of employees to do that too. So yeah, there's there's absolutely that too. Absolutely. So one of the things that really captured my attention when I when I heard Witty talking was this um, the idea of uh, government uh, business partnerships and and how hard. Yeah, I work in the space of partnerships, and so I, I know how hard it can be of aligning the interests of uh, different institutions, but just contemplating how hard it must be to align the interests of government and a pharma industry and to try to um, orchestrate um, a, a partnership with regulators who are appointed in some cases uh, or employed at the uh, at the discretion of uh, political appointees and how that can swing from administration to administration. It's just a fascinating thing to think about how complex that might be. Absolutely. Then you think about how big pharma and the nature of their job and the nature of their industry causes them to push the boundaries of what it is that they're working on. And you have almost almost 100,000 people pushing the boundaries of what it is that we can physically do to the body. And then you see cases like even GlaxoSmithKline was charged $3 billion back in 2012 for wrongful misconduct of some of their drugs and vaccines. And so the just one small step for these big pharma companies can create massive questions that in such a complicated system might taint a relationship that's very fragile to begin with in a very, very big way. So maintaining that relationship, as you're talking about, to me seems like something that only leaders that have the most keen understanding of what it is that they that company or or what it is that their full stakeholders need or are interested in will be able to thrive in. You know, it's not lost on me that we're we're podcasting in a week where Wells Fargo uh, just had um, uh, a, a pretty major uh, a major incident come out. And so within their um, business structure, they somehow allowed. Um, uh, 5,300 employees to uh, be opening accounts on consumers' behalf in order to, to drive their um, their pay system and their and their bonuses. And this 
obviously is a major systemic issue and, 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 and that was bad enough, I think, at the beginning of the week. And then by later in the week, we, we get news of a pay package uh, for the senior, I think it's a senior executive vice president at Wells Fargo who was, um, exit package was $125 million following the $185 million fine by the government. And it just raises the question about, um, you know, where's the board? In, uh, in sort of administering this, where is the clear uh, business direction? How is Wells Fargo management setting clear value systems for its employees that uh, a unit can't just sort of go off um, the rails like just happened here? And so you think of um, uh, GSK and 100,000 employees. How do you think they keep their employees operating with these different stakeholders and these different missions and the, the health of the world and the profitability of the company in balance because there have to be there have to be times when you know when, when those things come in conflict with one another absolutely um, <clears throat> that is a very very interesting question I think that's one of the most interesting questions we can ask about this current situation to me I mean you need a leader at the top who has a very clear prioritization of what your operating principles are and what your values are and having that instilled with a complete attention to detail I think is what helps a leader in this situation where it's so incredibly complicated really be able to thrive and what what I am worried about with big pharma right now and to me, GlaxoSmithKline is one of those companies that looks to be a shining star amidst everything that's going on in the world right now, given just the goodwill that they seem to have provided um, to a lot of the benefit of society. But um, given all of that, you know, I, I, I just I, I wonder, you know, can another leader come in and have that attention to detail and understanding for what all of their stakeholders need and continue to reiterate those values and reiterate that prioritization all the way through that organization? Absolutely. And we'll know soon enough, right? He, uh, he's retiring. When did he say? It's uh, spring? Yeah, I think it's spring of this year. Okay. So I will certainly be watching with a very keen eye to see who they might replace him with and what that person's background is and what it is, uh, you know, their priorities are. Because you could play it out anyway from a shareholder standpoint. Baby boomer generation is going to continue to get older. There's a lot of money to be made in big pharma. There certainly could be a lot of returns in that space. From a governmental standpoint, I mean, we're in a world where you have radicalism continuing to push the boundaries from a political landscape and something like a business governmental partnership in this complicated of an environment it certainly seems to be a little rocky right now. Absolutely. And then lastly, with society and the increasing transparency, I mean, how can we continue to see the value that these companies continue to bring? So I think the future is is up in the air. Yeah, I think I think to add onto that of the changes going on is just the the globalization and how close in the world is coming and how these diseases um, are right on our shore. You know, I, I just this morning was booking a trip to uh, to Southwest Florida, and in that calculation and thinking about Zika and man, you know, is that a scary thing? 
uh, to think about contracting a disease like that that you could pass back into the system here. Um, you don't want to do that. Uh, and and uh, the role that pharmaceutical companies can play in helping us eradicate diseases like that, they seem to be happening more and more as the world gets closer. Zika, which originated in Africa, right. um, in, right. in just a matter of a few years makes the hop over to Brazil and then within a very short period of time worked its way up to where it's in South Florida today um, in, in small doses. And, and uh, it's, um, it's scary. And so we need a healthy industry that's helping us attack attack these things. And I think the central question is what kind of leaders are going to help create a healthy industry and can steer society and government and business um, towards the benefit of society while rewarding investors for the big risks that they're taking. Absolutely. I mean, these big pharma companies, Andrew Whitty said it, have been around for over 300 years. The industry has been around for over 300 years. So they have proved their their uh, benefit to society for a little while. I just think, you know, all of your points nailed it. If we in 20 years with the globalization of the world, if we in 20 years no longer have big pharma companies, I can't imagine how we're going to how we're going to stop the next contagion. So, you know, this is a this is a relationship that is certainly necessary and um, I hope can continue. One of the things I walked away from that podcast with was an appreciation for uh, the complexity that that industry deals with just the, the regulatory environment that you know they're in 150 plus countries, all with different regulatory systems. Each one of those carries cost um, and investment required in order to seek a return. And in um, you know you and I, Grant, both come out of a background where we see the benefits of an efficient market and an efficient system um, in how it can drive benefits. But I wonder what that looks like. How we could get to a more efficient global regulatory environment that would allow that industry to operate more efficiently, which would then, of course, drive down cost. It would drive down cost and then hopefully price, um, if, as so long as competition is left in place. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. I think given the nature of different cultures, given the nature of the gray area or the gray space that big pharma walks just in general, the question about how to manage a, now a global relationship where big farmers are sitting in between society, government, and shareholders is really interesting. And What role does the World Health Organization play in that? What role does... Um, major trends that are going on or certain generational viewpoints that are that exist right now have you know i I would just hope that whoever replaces uh sir andrew witty is somebody who does have that mindset for this is what the world needs right now and this is how we can bring our resources to it it's a shame um you know, we're, we're, we're both had a positive reaction about the leadership of this company and, yeah. and, and the importance of character in this industry and, and the leaders that are there. It occurred to me, too, that, you know, when we think about Wells Fargo, uh, unfortunately, this week, and we think about Volkswagen, which would be another notorious um, case where a brand was dramatically impacted, it seems like Big Pharma is a bit insulated from that. We don't, you know, often know the household names, despite the commercials on TV. We, we don't yes. often know the household names of the drug that we might have to take in a transient sort of way. Um, and are these companies a bit more insulated in, in terms of what they do? And could that incent them to take more risk and, and, and potentially put more of us at risk in the work that they do? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think the, 
big thing that they have going for them is that it's is the complication of the industry in general. I mean, their overly white TV advertisements, I think, are consistent, but the names, the effects that they help uh, cure or provide, I think just the messaging to me overall continues to be very, uh, you know, just very complicated. And I think it's as the, as technology makes what these drugs actually, what benefit these drugs actually provide, as technology provides the transparency to that, I think we're starting to understand more and more. But again, back to the, it all starts with the consumer education. You know, once we get a more educated public or, you know, just educated stakeholders overall onto what all of this stuff means, then we'll have a, to me, we'll have a clearer picture for the value that these companies could hopefully be able to provide if they are approaching it in an honest way. Well, one, one question I'd love to explore with, a, with an industry leader when we, when we start having guests in these podcasts would be just, just to try to understand where this industry might head. Um, you know, we, we place a high value in our society on human life and, and your, the story about your brother and the $100,000 investment in those days, uh, which would be sub- substantially more today um, uh, to save his life was a, you know, a, a decision that was made in an environment where that, that was the point of insurance and there was probably no limit to how much the industry might um, uh, invest. I, I, although I think there are some critical caps of something like a million and a half dollars um, to, to save someone's life. But um, where does that go in the future where theoretically the investments and the technology and um, the amount of money that could be spent uh, on you know life-saving uh, you know, life-saving medicines or treatments, um, you know, could continue to skyrocket. But there will be a point at which the society just can't afford for every citizen. And then you start to get into rationalizing healthcare and death panels and all those all those ideas. It's a there's a lot to unravel in this complicated industry. Absolutely, absolutely. And I you know it, this industry to me is really at a major inflection point, especially with the baby boomer generation right now and the how much the u.s sets the tone for where certain industries will move or where certain industries will migrate to and especially if you thought about this industry moving towards the you know the trend of just profitability in general how limits on healthcare, rationalization rationalization of healthcare could be something that we start to walk into you know and then how does society view big pharma after that you know, how does how does that relationship with government continue to happen? Do the employees there still find a purpose? I mean, that is an avenue that would be scary. So, yeah. well, you're going to edit out this next comment. Um, but, you know, we talk about the cost that boomers are, you know, um, you know, imposing on the system. I wonder what it's going to look like with millennials. You know, the, the echo generation of the boomers, a very large generation that uh, prizes experience. Uh, you know, that what is experiential health care? Look oh, like, yeah. and uh, oh, you know, yeah. I want my, you know, I want my uh, food in the hospital to, uh, <laughs> to be an experience. Oh yeah, um, I think things could change a lot in the industry based on the demands of that generation too. Well, I think I think this gives us a reason to throw an industry professional from healthcare on our interview list. That is short right now, but we'll we'll grow very long, I'm sure. But yeah, I think where will this industry go? Uh, what will happen? And who do we think are some of the leaders that are, are bold enough and transformative enough to continue to push it to have that 
great effect for society that it could have? That's a great question. I think the one industry I'm going to watch here for the next uh, the next couple of weeks is uh, Alina Healthcare, which is struggling through a nurses' strike right now. And the irony of uh, nurses on strike, which is um, you know, presumably a, a conflict over the cost of um, the healthcare for the nurses themselves. So you have a, 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 a an institution that's trying to keep their costs down, uh, in, uh, imposing wage controls and benefit controls on nurses uh, who can't afford the healthcare that the employer is trying to keep down. And um, it's it's just an interesting uh, an interesting dynamic for us to watch. Absolutely, we uh, we'll have to do a follow up to our listeners when that that situation starts to unravel itself or a follow-up if there's any major breaks. We'll put some of that in the show notes as well. Uh, I'll certainly be watching that too. It's a very philosoph- interesting philosophical uh, <laughs> dilemma that that company finds themselves in. Awesome. Well, thanks for bringing Healthcare Forward, Grant. I appreciate it. It's been fun to talk about it. Yeah, this has been great. To our listeners, if you have any opinions on this topic or uh, anything that you want to share with us, uh, please do so. Until next time. Just uh, my my mic is floppy today. <laughs> well, let's talk about Viagra. <laughs> <laughs>